you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12 is where we will be today. Mission of submission, a lifestyle of righteousness. A lifestyle of righteousness. Anybody ever went on a diet before? Anybody ever tried to go on a diet before? Anybody ever thought about it before? I, I was thinking about it, and, and any time, whether it's a diet or any kind of, I'm going to do this, live healthier in this way or something, here's what we always do. It seems like the, the first thing we do when we say, all right, I'm going to start eating healthier, is we go ahead and schedule some days that are our free days <laughs> or our splurge days or the days we don't have to stick to our diet. You know what I mean? So we say, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to have a diet, and so... Um, but Saturdays, I can, I can eat whatever I want to eat, but the rest of the week, I'll, I'll, try, to, I'll try to eat healthy. Uh, that's what we do. We, we, we insert these days where we don't have to stick to that commitment. But it's not so with living on mission. There's never a time in the life of a Christian when we get to take off from being a Christian, so to speak. It doesn't work like our diets or other things that we schedule in some free days or some splurge days. As Christians, we never take a break from living on mission. How we live matters all the time in every area of our lives. We are called to live on mission 24-7, which means striving to live in a way that honors God in every area of our lives 24-7. Missional submission will flow from a lifestyle of righteous living. Missional submission will flow from a lifestyle of righteous living. Well, what do we mean by missional submission? Just to remind us where we're at here in First Peter. Remember Peter writing to exiles, these exiles who, who many are being oppressed. Life is hard for them trying to live as Christians in a world that is opposed to Christ. We can see ourselves right in this, uh, this line of people who have been called to live differently than the world in which we live. And then in chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, he takes this turn um, where he moves from talking about who we are in Christ to how we are to live. And we could summarize those two verses by saying that we are to be exiles on mission. We are to run from sin in our lives and we are to run towards good deeds for the purpose of the lost around us. That God would be glorified as we live our lives in a way that pleases him. And as we help other people learn how to live their lives in a way that pleases him. And the first way that we are called to live on mission is to submit. And we've seen this in several different areas. You can see in verse 13, verse 18, chapter 3, verse 1, these different areas that we are called to submit. But in verse 8, Peter wraps up this section on living a life of submission and in a way goes ahead and introduces the next strategy for living on mission, which is suffering. Submission and suffering. And this passage kind of serves as a bridge. But if we're going to live in these particular areas of our life that Peter has been speaking about and addressing, if we're going to live in these individual areas of our life on mission, on a mission of submission, 
then we're going to need to live for the Lord in every area of our life. We can't just pick these few that he's mentioned. He's going to tell us, hey, I've mentioned a few specific areas of your life, but don't think those are the only areas that you are supposed to live righteously. If we're going to live on mission for God, where our lives are pointing people to him and his glory is displayed through the gospel, we must submit every area of our lives to God and his will for our lives. And his will for all of us is that we would live in righteousness, that his standard of perfect holiness would be our standard of living and that we would hate sinful living just as he hates it. And we would pursue godly living for his glory. A life lived on mission for the Lord will be submitted to God and a life submitted to God will be characterized by righteous living. I want to share with us from this Uh, This passage, verses 8 through 12 this morning, four truths to help us understand what a lifestyle of righteousness looks like. Let's turn our eyes to the text. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Four truths to help us understand what a lifestyle of righteousness looks like. First, a a lifestyle of righteousness is marked by Christ-like treatment of fellow exiles. A lifestyle of righteousness is marked by Christ-like treatment of fellow exiles. Peter turns our attention in verse 1, excuse me, verse 8, the first verse of this passage, to our relationships with one another. Now, this is not the first time in his letter that he has talked about how fellow exiles, fellow Christians are to relate to one another. He talked about this back in chapter 1, verse 22, on down through chapter 2, verse 3, our relationships with one another. Here he gives five words. Five words, maybe our translations make more words than that, but there there are five basic words that he uses to describe what our relationships with one another in the body of Christ should be. One writer said this, like the fingers of the hand, they radiate from one center and work together. Speaking of these five things that we are called to live out. I would say that the center then is Jesus Christ. The first that we see is unity. Finally, all of you, finally, all of you have unity of mind. He's not just speaking to one group of the Christians. He's speaking to all of the believers and they are all to have unity of mind. We could define unity this way. It is different people joined together by and for the cause of Christ. Christian unity is different people joined together by and for the cause of Christ. We are different. We have differences among us. We have different personalities, different skin colors. We may speak different languages. We have different socioeconomic backgrounds and and lifestyles that we live now. There are all sorts of differences that we have. But the 
message of Jesus Christ, the cause of Christ, unites us together and we live for that cause. We see unity in Scripture many different ways. We see it prayed for by Jesus. We see unity prayed for by Jesus. In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying for us. I don't know if you know that, but we have a prayer of Jesus that He prayed for us. He was praying for His disciples that were around Him there physically. And then He transitioned in His prayer to pray for all the disciples, even those who would come after the original followers of Jesus, which would include all of us who have trusted in Christ. And He prayed this in John chapter 17, beginning in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in Me. That's you and me. Those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So the world may believe that you have sent me. Notice the missional element in his prayer that we would be unified to one another. He goes on in his prayer and says this, the glory that you have given me, I've given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Jesus prayed that we would be unified. And even in that prayer, we see that he modeled unity in his relationship with the father. We find in scripture that that unity is not only prayed for by Jesus and modeled by Jesus, it is made possible by Jesus. How is it that people so different can unite together in one body for one cause and live life together. It is because of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, we find these beautiful words, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace who has made us both one. He's talking about Jew and Gentile. He has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Thereby, I love this last phrase, killing the hostility. When Jesus died on the cross, he was killing the hostility that we would have between one another. Whatever the differences are that would seek to divide us. Jesus died to destroy those barriers and bring us together. We see unity displayed in the early church in Acts chapter uh, 4, verse 32. It said this of the new believers. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. In one more verse, we find the apostles teaching us just like Jesus prayed for us to be unified in Philippians chapter one, verse 27, the apostle Paul wrote this only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This is missional living. The church united together by the cause of Christ, which was his cause was to save sinners from their sin through his death on the cross, united by that and united for the cause of Christ, that we would spread that message to the nations. What hinders us from doing that? What hinders unity in the body of Christ? Well, it's pride and selfishness. 
simply pride and selfishness in our hearts that leads to discrimination against one another. One writer said this of unity. He said the New Testament never treats this agreeing in Christ as an unnecessarily, excuse me, unnecessary, though highly desirable spiritual luxury, but as something essential to the true being of the church. It is to be a unity which powerful tensions are held together by an overmastering loyalty. And strong antipathies of race and color, temperament and taste, social position and economic interest are overcome in common worship and common obedience. Such unity will only come when Christians are humble and bold enough to lay hold on the unity already given in Christ and to take it more seriously than their own self-importance and sin. Some of the strongest words I think I've ever read outside of Scripture on unity in the body of Christ. What is the remedy then for disunity? It is the cross of Christ. It's the cross of Christ where we see the will of the Son of God united perfectly with the will of the Father to provide a sacrifice for sin. But he doesn't just say unity. Peter goes on and he says that we are to have sympathy for one another. What is sympathy? We could say sympathy is this, feeling what another feels in such a way that it leads you to join them for their benefit. Feeling what another feels in such a way that it leads you to join them for their benefit. Let me define it using Scripture. Romans chapter 12, verse 15, I think, gives us a great definition of what sympathy is. It says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. He's talking to the body of Christ. Paul writes to the first to the Corinthians in first Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So let me ask the same question I did about unity. What hinders it? What hinders sympathy for one another? Well, I think the answer is the same. Pride and selfishness. Pride and selfishness that leads us to an unwillingness to take the time to enter into another's pain. Or pride and selfishness that leads us to covet another's success rather than rejoicing with them in their success. What is the remedy for that? It is the same as well. If we find within our hearts a lack of sympathy, we must run to the cross of Christ. Because there at the cross of Christ, we see Jesus join in sorrowful Join us in the sorrowful state of our sin. He enters into our suffering with us, actually for us, on our behalf, becoming sin for us. We see sympathy on display on the cross. And Peter doesn't stop with sympathy. He said, unity of mind, sympathy. And then he says, brotherly love. Brotherly love. It's not the first time in Peter that he has mentioned this. We can go back to chapter 1, verse 22, and he says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Jesus said in John chapter 13 that the way that the world would know that we belong to him is by the way that we love one another. Remember, Jesus is concerned with the world coming to know him. And the way they come to know him is by knowing people who know Jesus. And the way that they're going to know that we know Jesus is by the way that we love one another. One of the most beautiful passages of Scripture on love is found in 1 John. Really, 
all throughout First John, we have beautiful words about love. We can uh, go to a couple of those. First John chapter three, uh, verse eleven. It says this: For this is the message you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. I'm going to skip to verse fourteen. We know that we have passed out of death into life. In other words, we know that we are saved. How? Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. It's not just saying that we love one another. It's showing that we love one another because John goes on in 1 John and he says this, By this we know love. That he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Well, what hinders love? The same thing. Pride and selfishness. That leads us to choices of self-service, serving my own good, rather than self-sacrifice, serving the good of others. And what is the remedy for that? It is the cross of Christ. Because the cross of Christ is where we see Jesus display the deepest love the world has ever known as he died in our place, taking the wrath of God upon himself so that we would have salvation. Peter doesn't stop simply with brotherly love. He goes on to compassion, compassion, a tender heart. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love and a tender heart. What is compassion? What is a tender heart? I think it's this. It's the inward pull inside of us that results in outward action to help someone in need. It's not just that inward pull. It's the inward pull that then results in outward action to help someone in need. And what hinders it? You guessed it. Pride and selfishness inside of us that leads to an unwillingness to spend personal resources in order to help those in need. One writer said it this way. It is still easier to be satisfied with a sentimentalism which feels a moment's comfortable sorrow and which does nothing about it. How often do we choose that easy way? But the remedy did not choose the easy way. Jesus is the remedy for our compassion. And there on the cross of Christ, we see the compassion of Almighty God toward lost sinners result in action on our behalf. To meet our need of salvation. Well, if we had to guess the last one that Peter, the last trait that Peter's going to say ought to characterize us, we probably would guess what? Humility. If pride and selfishness are the things that keep us from doing all these other things, it makes sense why Peter ends his list of how we're to treat one another with the trait of humility. He says to have a tender heart and a humble mind. What is humility is the attitude of putting the interests of others before yourself. The thing that hinders us is the opposite of humility. Pride and selfishness. And what is the remedy? The cross of Christ. Because there 
on the cross, we see God Himself humbling Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, Paul writes to the Philippians. Humility was seen as a sign of weakness in the first century context in which Peter is writing. It wasn't exalted as a great character trait. It was actually looked down upon. To say that a person was humble was really an insult because they saw it as a sign of weakness. It's power to assert our authority. It's power to lord it over others. And yet on the cross we see the most powerful man who ever walked the face of the earth. God Himself humbling Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Humility is not weakness. It is the power of God in us. You see, the cross is what unites us and what humbles us. This is the cross where we see the love of God manifested in genuine sympathy and compassion and where our hearts are transformed to love one another in the same way. If we can't love and serve and act with humility towards our brothers and sisters in Christ with whom we share an eternal bond purchased by the blood of Christ, why in the world will we expect to be able to do what Peter has talked about and commanded, what God has commanded in the previous verses, submit to governing authorities, submit to harsh masters, submit to unbelieving husbands. How are we going to do that if we can't even live in humility and love towards one another in the body of Christ? If our relationships with one another are full of disunity and strife and selfishness, why would the world want the Jesus that we claim to have? And if we spend all of our time fighting and arguing with one another, how will we have time to focus our attention on the lost around us? At the heart of living on mission for the Lord is living together with one another in a way that is characterized by the righteousness of God. And really, it is imitating the life of Jesus Christ. Number two, number two. A righteous lifestyle is marked by undeserved blessing to the hostile world. Undeserved blessing to the hostile world. Peter makes a transition here. In verse 8, he was talking about our relationships with one another. Then he transitions to our relationship with the world around us. Our relationship with the world around us as exiles is one where we bless when we are cursed. Where we bless... When we are cursed. And this is the normal life of an exile. Notice that he says in verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil. Or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary bless. For to this you are called. That you may obtain a blessing. The assumption here. And this has been in the assumption throughout all of First Peter. Is that exiles will be reviled. That people who claim the name of Christ. Will be looked down upon. That people around us will not like it when we say that Jesus is our Lord. People will be offended by that. And some will revile us. Just like they reviled our Master 
Romans chapter 12, verse 17 says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. 1 Thessalonians 5, 15, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 12, When reviled, we bless. Where did the apostles, the writers of the New Testament letters, where did they get this idea that when somebody curses me, I'm supposed to turn around and bless them? They got it from Jesus. They got it from Jesus. Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. We find these words of Jesus. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. They didn't just get it from the teaching of Jesus though. They witnessed Jesus live this As the people yelled, crucify, and as the soldiers mocked, and as Pilate washed his hands, and as the chief priest said, this man is a blasphemer, which was untrue. As false accusations were hurled at Jesus, and as nails were driven into his hands, Jesus opened not his mouth. Peter has told us this in chapter 2, verse 22, where it says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We don't bless those who curse us simply because God has commanded it, but because that's how God has treated us. It's not just the Jews. It's not just the Roman soldiers. It's not just chief priests. It's not just those who held the hammers in their hands who have reviled Christ. We have reviled Jesus. Every time we sin, we revile Christ. And yet, He opened not His mouth. And in response to our reviling Him, He blesses us with salvation. And then He calls us as Christians to do the same for others. Our blessing to those who revile us should not flow simply from a heart determined to obey, but from a heart overflowing with the love of Christ, the love that He has shown us. What does it mean to bless someone? It doesn't simply mean just not to retaliate. To actually bless someone is to go the extra mile. It is to do good to them. One writer said this, believers are to ask God to show his favor and grace upon those who have conferred injury upon us. It's more than a feeling. We are to act in kindness toward our enemies. Say, how in the world can I do that? How can I bless someone who has cursed me? How can I not repay evil for evil, but repay evil with good? It's by the power of the Lord in you, transforming your heart supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in us battling against the passions of the flesh and producing holy and righteous living in us. It says that we would attain a blessing. Those who do this are blessed. We'll talk about that blessing in just a moment. But please know that just because we hold our tongue doesn't mean we're being obedient to this. We're to bless them. We're to open our mouths and speak kindness towards those who speak evil towards us. 
We're to do good in response to evil. I read a story that went this way. There was a Christian soldier who was living in a barracks with his unit. And each evening when he would read his Bible and pray before retiring, he was reviled and insulted by the soldier across the aisle. One night, a pair of muddy combat boots came flying at the Christian. The next morning, the hostile soldier found his boots at the foot of his bed, cleaned and polished and ready for inspection. The story goes on to say this, Several soldiers in this company eventually became Christians as a result of the inner strength of one who could return blessing for insult. Only thing I might change about that story is it wasn't just inner strength. It was supernatural power. It was a life transformed that allowed that soldier, that led that soldier, compelled that soldier to repay evil with good. To repay reviling with blessing. When we think about our lives living, being lived on mission, we want the world to take note of our lives. Not so that they would exalt us, but they would go, what in the world is different? I mean, why is that person living that way? We want them to stop and think. And when we repay evil with good and reviling with blessing, it will make the world stop and think. Just like it made some of those soldiers in that barracks stop and think and want to know what was different about this man. And the result was that they too were led to faith in Jesus Christ. That soldier was living on mission as he cleaned the muddy boots of one who hated him. Number three. A righteous lifestyle is marked by daily choices to do good rather than evil. He's talked about our relationship with one another in the church, talked about our relationship with the hostile world around us, and now he just brings this teaching, this section of his letter, not all of his letter, but this section of his letter to a close by quoting from Psalm chapter 34. Psalm chapter 34. He says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. If those words sounded familiar, that's the psalm that I read at the beginning of our service today. I read that whole psalm, Psalm chapter 34. In fact, this is not the first time that Peter is quoted from Psalm chapter 34 in his letter. It seems that Psalm chapter 34 was heavy on Peter's heart. Right there in his mind as he wrote this letter, he quoted from that psalm uh, earlier in chapter 2, verse 3, when he said, If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, whoever desires to love life and see good days. Who doesn't desire to love life and see good days? It's the desire of our hearts. We desire to love life and see good days. The question is, what does it mean to love life and what is a good day? I think God is the author of life. We love life. We don't love death. It's, it's created, instilled within us that we would desire life rather than death. What about those good days? 
The world has an interesting definition of good days. The world would say a good day is a day that's free from pain, sorrow, and suffering, and trouble, and trials. But good days in this life, according to Scripture, are not necessarily days that are free from those things. In fact, the present way that we enjoy good days is the joy of belonging to God in the midst of the trials of life. When God has saved us and heaven is waiting on us, even days of suffering can be considered good days, perhaps considered even the best days in this life, as nothing should surpass the joy, as Paul said in Philippians, of sharing in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of the lost. See, the world defines a good day as sitting on the beach, drinking a cold drink, forgetting all your responsibilities and cares, turning to your friends and saying, man, it doesn't get any better than this. This is the life. One Christian said this, a good day in the book of Acts shows Paul and Silas in a Greek prison their backs bleeding and their feet in stocks. They are singing psalms at midnight, perhaps Psalm 34. Silas, now sitting beside Peter, we learn that from the end of Peter, that Silas is with Peter as he's writing this. Silas, now sitting beside Peter, would remember with him the word of Jesus, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. You want to know what a good day is? A good day is knowing that your sins are forgiven and your eternity is secure and that Jesus is preparing a place for you with Him in glory where you will spend good day after good day, great day after great day, blessing after blessing, spiritual riches of Christ in glory forever and ever and ever. That's a good day here on this earth. Knowing what's coming. An eternity full of good days. Well, who gets to have that? Those who keep their tongues from evil, their lips from speaking deceit, those who turn away from evil and do good, those who seek peace and pursue it. Wow, that just gets right down to day to day life, right? Anybody ever say any words during the day? Maybe a few, maybe a lot. But pretty much all of us open our mouths at some point and talk. We're just talking about day to day life. And Peter said that matters. It matters even how you speak in regards to the mission of God. The words that come out of our mouths, how we speak to our husbands, how we speak to our wives, how we speak to our children, how we speak to our parents, how we speak to our co-workers and our classmates, our employees and our boss, how we speak to those in the grocery store, how we speak to people matters for the mission of God. We're to run from sin. We're to turn away from evil. For you, perhaps that means turning off a phone or turning off a TV, watching things that shouldn't be filling your mind. Maybe that means leaving one group of friends for another. Maybe that means quitting the substance abuse or ending a sexually immoral relationship or whatever that looks like in your life. But we are to turn from evil. And in place of that, we are to do good. This is not works-based righteousness. Peter is not saying, 
if you will live this way, then you will see good days. If you will live this way, then you will have the blessing of everlasting life. Because he's already told us that the way that we have the blessing of everlasting life, you can see this in chapter 1, verse 3 and following, is if God causes us to be born again to a living hope, not through our good works, but through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable and defiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, That's the inheritance, and it's ours because of Jesus, not because of what we do. But when we have trusted in Christ, we are called then to live out a life of righteousness. And that leads us to our last and final point that we see in verse 12. And that is that a lifestyle, a righteous lifestyle is marked by a life-giving relationship with Jesus. A life-giving relationship with Jesus. Listen, it matters how we live. It matters But how we live is determined by our relationship with Jesus, whether we have one or whether we don't. You want to live righteously? Don't just try to live righteously. You want to live a life that pleases the Lord? The first step is admitting that you can't do it. Notice verse 12, it says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And if we were to keep reading in Psalm 34, which we did earlier, we would see that it says to cut their memory off from the face of the earth. To have the face of the Lord against you is to experience eternal punishment. But to have the eyes of the Lord on you is to be welcomed into his kingdom. Well, I want to, have, I want to be the, wel- the welcomed one. I want to have the eyes of the Lord on me. Well, that means it says I need to be righteous. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. So I need to try my very best. I need to try my hardest to do good things and not do bad things. And then God will accept me. No. Because Scripture says that no one is righteous. No, not one. Oh, great. God's, God's told us that, that the righteous are welcome, with, welcome in His kingdom. But no one is righteous. Oh, thanks God for telling us that all the righteous are welcome. And then telling us that no one is righteous. Thanks for getting our hopes up, God. God doesn't get our hopes up and then let them fall flat on their face. God has made a way for sinners to be made righteous. You say, I want to be righteous. That's good. Let me tell you how. It's by admitting that you are not righteous, confessing that unrighteousness to the Lord, and then looking to, guess what, the cross of Christ. Where Jesus took our sin on himself and in exchange he gives us his righteousness so that I repent of my sin and trust in what Jesus did on the cross. Then God sees me a sinner as righteous in his sight. And not only that, but then I get the privilege of living a righteous life. I get the privilege of turning from evil in day to day life. And living on mission for him as I live a life characterized by righteousness. Either we are righteous or we are wicked. Either we are in a relationship with God or we are rejected by God. Either we have been transformed by the saving power of God or we have not. And what Peter is saying here is that if we have been transformed, if we have believed in Christ for salvation, then we will be living a transformed life. 
Our relationships with one another are transformed. Our relationship with the hostile world is transformed. The way we live in day-to-day life, even the very words that come out of our mouth, is transformed. Because God has transformed us. And when we live that way, when we live that way, people who don't know Jesus and will die lost in their sin will see our righteous living and they'll ask why. And we'll have an opportunity to tell them that Jesus loves them too and that He died for them too. And if they'll repent and trust in Christ just like we have, they can have life and have eternal good days. Living on mission, our lives must be marked by righteousness, Christians. Because Jesus has given us new life, it matters how we live. Let's pray. Father, I pray that right now in this moment, in each heart, you would impress your word upon us. Father, if there's someone in this room who can't live for you because they don't belong to you, they can't live righteously before you because you have not made them righteous, because they have not yet trusted in Christ alone for salvation, Father, I pray that today they would choose to follow Jesus. Today, I pray that they would repent of their sin and believe in what Jesus did on the cross to rescue them. Father, that you would transform their heart and transform their life from the inside out. Father, for those of us who have been transformed, and many of us have, Father, I pray that you would remind us that we can't pick and choose what days we want to live for you. Our lives have been transformed and we are to live transformed lives every moment of every day. We don't take a break from living on mission for you. And why would we want to take a break from that, Father? Because the best day is the day that we live for your glory. And so we want to do that every day, Father. Would you help us? Lord, if there's a way that instead of turning away from evil, we are turning to evil in our lives, Father, convict us of that. Father, help us to confess it to you. Ask for your forgiveness and then turn from that evil and by your power do good in the place of that. Father, if there's some broken relationships among us in this room, Father, I pray that we would repent of that, that we would go to a brother and sister in Christ who we have not been living in unity with and we would apologize, we would ask for forgiveness and Father, that our church would be one that is characterized by unity and love and sympathy and compassion and humility for one another. Father, I pray that if we have been repaying evil for evil in our world, Father, there's someone who treats us poorly because we follow Jesus and we have been treating them poorly in return, Father, I pray that we would repent of that and that we would look for opportunities to bless them in the name of Christ. Father, even in just day-to-day things, even, even things like the words that come out of our mouth, Father, I pray that we would live holy and righteous before You because You have made us righteous through Christ. 
Father, work in our hearts in this moment. Help us to be obedient to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.